Hi, everyone. Welcome to Room Now's coverage of ULR 2023. We have our first of the ULR 2023 faculty daily recaps. In this session, our Room Now faculty is going to give you their highlights of the first day yesterday and second day's meetings. And um, we'll discuss what we thought were the highlights of the meeting. I'll, you all know me, Jack Christian Dallas. Janet, introduce yourself. Janet Pope, London, Ontario, Canada. And Orly. I'm Orly Najm from Glasgow, UK. Okay. So, all right. So we're all here in beautiful Milan. Um, we're back at our rooms, uh, for bunking down for the night, recovering from two days of walking endlessly, as you do at a convention. Um, I've asked our faculty to um, come with what they thought were the highlights of the last two days, and we're just going to discuss a few of those. Why don't we be begin with Orly? Yeah, sure. So I'm going to start with today's highlight, uh, and it's the APIPRA study. So it's uh, OP0130. It was presented by Andy Cope. And um, for those who don't know what APIPRA stands for, is for the use of a Batacept in the pre-RA. Um, and it was quite good data. So they did this randomized control trials phase two B amongst uh, above 30 centers. They included um, more than 200 patients, two groups, abatacept for one year versus placebo. And so um, as opposed to other study previously published, um, they were looking at patients that had you know, because previously it was uh, MRI synovitis. Well, this time it was really patients with seropositive, uh, so ACPA or rheumatoid factor or both and arthralgia, but they didn't have to have subclinical synovitis. Um, and I think it was 73% that did have some moderate synovitis on ultrasound at baseline, but no Doppler. Um, and so... <sighs> What happens is after one year of treatment, what you can see is that way less patients do develop um, RA. And uh, when they stop the treatment after one year and they keep the follow-up for two years, what you can see as well is that, you know, the, the curves tend to get together really. So it's it's preventive as long as people take it, but when you stop, it doesn't really reduce the long-term risk. Um, but it was quite interesting because the symptoms were improved. And it seemed to be particularly uh, working to prevent a rheumatoid in those people that were highly um, seropositive for um, ACPA. And so this means that, you know, it, it, there might be a subgroup that might benefit better uh, than others. And that has to be looked at maybe more uh, in more details. When it comes to safety, uh, there was no, no new signal. Um, I, haven't, I haven't seen any... Uh, a number needed to treat or a number needed to harm um, from that study, but I think that would be something interesting to look at as well. So yeah, so it was it was quite good actually, and, and it was a bit of a different population that, that we have seen before. So that was that was good. It was quite interesting because there were less inflammatory um, at baseline. So and, I'm and going to editorialize a little, and then Janet, you're going to be the deciding vote. The um, thing about this study is that in the blinded part, the first year when you're on placebo or a drug. Clear separation, 29% on placebo developed RA, 6% on RA, on abatacevdal RA. But then in the unblinded part where they're not getting drugs, they're just being followed. Look, as Orly says, the lines tend to come together, but they don't come together. Meaning it still is 
37% versus 25% who develop RA, placebo versus whatever. All this happens in a relatively mild RA population. Q-phase reactants are kind of low, two, three tender joints. Um, it's really, I think, the ideal population that these trials should be done in. The question is, is this a this is not prevention. This is more of a delay. And the delay that they showed was a 99, on average, a 99-day delay in those who received the drug. Uh, now, we don't know what the long-term down, you know, downstream consequences of this are. Is, is that really beneficial? But, you know, there are some people who don't like this data and they'll say, well, the lines come together, it didn't work. And then others will look at this data and said, but there's that 99-day delay and there's a, the AUCs look very different here. So Janet, is this, are these results really important and impactful or is this disappointing? Uh, both, and so I can answer uh, both of you kind of uh, favorably, I guess. So the first thing is, I think it actually shows that in area trial, it was reproduced. Why do I say that? Because area was only the arthralgia MRI positive, CCP positive, so ACPA positive, and where the delay, when you put all these people together, it's really the ACPA positive patients driving the data. So number one, you do delay. Number two, they felt better, even though they're starting to lose ground, they, their symptoms were better controlled. Number three, what if we went another year or two, um, if it, cost wasn't an issue. Safety certainly wasn't an issue in this study. Um, and number four, I think it was a real high rate of um, converting to rheumatoid arthritis in this group because often in studies, it's about one in six, 15%. And here it was 25% or even one in three higher in the group that started on placebo um, um, after you went and stopped the trial. So I think I think that if this drug was uh, something that was um, widely available at lower cost, we'd be saying, why not do it and why stop? But we're not there yet. So I, that's where we're a bit underwhelmed. We can't be treating um, uh, RA at risk or people pre-RA at risk um, indefinitely, I don't think without hard endpoints uh, with any medication that um, is not that easy uh, to get access to. It, what's kind of critical to this is what is really the rate at which a preclinical RA patient will develop RA? And it, the range is 20 to 60%. Kevin Dean, who lectures most on this, really says 30%. But really, that's looking at like the more you up the ante, the more you add in factors. ACPA alone by itself is probably low, as Janet says. It could be low as 15, probably as closer to 20, 25%. But then when you start adding in an acute phase reactant or a first degree relative or a higher titer or multiple autoantibodies, the rate of progression is higher. So you have an expectation based on the population. The question is, does this therapy improve the expectation or the outcomes of, uh, as compared to an expectation? That's why you have to have a control population. But uh, I, it's interesting to see you know, how people react to this data. Um, it does have positives, does have negatives. But um, the question is, would you give it to your cousin who's ACPA positive and really doesn't want to get RA like her mother who had really bad RA and they have no swollen joints? What would but, you do? Symptoms, but symptoms with arthralgia, I mean, you want to you increase that risk factor ratio, right? So yeah. um, 
I, I don't think right now I'm agreeing that I don't think right now you could you you really would you'd probably say let's watch carefully let's do ultrasound because if you get Doppler that's uh going to then suggest that you actually have a higher risk of erosions but you can't be Dopplering somebody you know every month all their joints right it's not feasible so Orly you get the last say on this what, what would you do having looked at this data does it change your thinking about whether you'll treat? If you had the option of treating with abatessum, would you do it at this point? I mean, if it was for myself or someone from my family, I think I would probably give the option. But I think there's one data that would be really relevant to have that we do not have yet is, you know, do the people that have been treated with abatacept and develop RA, how do they respond to the conventional synthetic dimers? Because, you know, it might be that we tweak the disease in a way that is going to be milder. I mean, I don't know. It's an hypothesis. But that's a data that I would really like to see. Because uh, if, it, if you put people in remission faster, which, again, it's just an hypothesis, but that might some be something to add in, in, in the balance, right? Uh, but we don't have that data yet. Yeah, and the, other, other, the other minor <laughs> point that they made at the end, of Andy, Andy Cope made at the end of the presentation, was patients who were clearly very auto-inflammatory in state, having multiple rheumatoid autoantibodies had like only 10% of them progressed to RA versus um, being seronegative made you progress to 50%. So now the, the lines are much more, much wider at the end. Um, and that's like part of this whole abatacept story that it seems to really be targeting uh, her better outcomes, the seropositives. I don't know. Uh, again, how this is gonna play out, because um, we have multiple studies now with ABBA we have a few with methotrexate with mixed results. Uh, hydroxychloroquine has failed. This is still not a closed uh, book on what to do with preclinical RA. Janet, what do you want to talk about? Um, I want to first talk about two abstracts and not really juxtapose them, but put them together. So these are on Jack. So safety and benefit. So the first one, um, these are both from uh, Thursday. So the first was an oral presentation, OP0116. And um, the question here was, you're looking at um, JAK inhibitors and comparing them to TNF inhibitors and also to other advanced therapies. And the question is, um, is there a differential benefit? And the funny thing is, yes, but. So if you look at the unadjusted raw data, TNF inhibitors looked uh, better. They had better outcomes. But if you adjust for age, sex, disease duration, line of therapy, all the usual confounders, then that actually flips. And what that means is kind of interesting. So if you look at the adjusted analysis, the JAK inhibitor users had uh, a better good ULAR response. And interestingly, it was actually better in the older people than the TNF inhibitors, but you're going to say, well, isn't it the older people I'm worried about safety? And that segues into the next study that I think is, um, it's nice because we have to figure out how to put the data together. So oral presentation OP0140, also today. So this looked at a really large RA administrative database, greater than 169,000 RA patients. And what they wanted to look at was safety signals, cardiovascular and cancer. And they were looking at the, um, the various uh, treatment groups. So this could have lots of channeling bias. Nobody's randomized. What, what they're looking at is cancer on conventional synthetic DMARDs 
on JAK inhibitors, TNF, and other biodemards. So they're looking at the various strata of people. And number one, cancer risk was elevated in older people, no surprise, men more than women, no surprise. But something that might surprise us a little bit is it was also um, increased in those with um, type two or less likely type one diabetes. So if you had diabetes, you had um, more cancer. And uh, I'm gonna come back to that in a second, but basically, they showed that um, JAK inhibitors had less cancer than the conventional synthetic DMARDs. And that when you um, look and say, is the drug you're taking, meaning the drug class, is that a risk for getting cancer? And it wasn't. Um, numerically, it was a little bit higher on JAKs, but the p-value was like almost one. It was a p of 0.9 or 0.8 or something like that. So that's the first interesting thing. The other thing is... Um, Apparently, there was an imbalance um, of some cardiovascular risk factors in the oral surveillance study. And I say apparently because I think we need to have some of these things going more to press uh, where there's more discussion about risk. But um, the assumption that I have is that I've heard, but I, I can't verify it yet. I'm not totally positive, but that there was more diabetes in the JAK inhibitor patients than in the TNF inhibitors on oral surveillance. And this thing, um, this study popping up the diabetic. Um, patients having more cancer. I thought it was really interesting. And in my opinion, a little bit, un, un, I didn't suspect it at all. So when you put the two studies together, um, JAK inhibitor safety depends on what you adjust for compared to TNF inhibitors, no surprise. And that the risk factors for cancer seem to be um, the same risk factors in all the populations of RA patients on treatment, but that the traditional risk factors for cancer are far more likely to increase cancer and not the drug you're using. So it's a good package to kind of put together and maybe say, um, you know, I'm going to say it facetiously, but did the regulators get it wrong on oral surveillance? And, you know, oral surveillance is an RCT. These are um, different ways of looking at patient uh, populations, cohorts, administrative database, things like that. So these, there, there's a bevy of um, rebuttal abstracts ever since oral surveillance saying, not in my hands, I don't see it. I don't know what they're talking about. And the problem with all the rebuttals is they're, they're manufactured post hoc analyses, reworks of data. And when that was done in the past with registries and meta-analyses and large LTE follow-ups. Yeah, they never found what was found in oral surveillance. The problem, the big biggest problem oral surveillance has is that it was a double-blind randomized control trial. Um, and Janet, doesn't that trump anything you can do with administrative claims? Um, yes and no. I mean, uh, you look at always when we're trying to say causality, we're looking at the strength of the data and RCTs um, and systematic reviews are higher than certainly um, observational studies, registry data, where we don't even know um, in registry data, smoking risk, we don't know family history, uh, we don't know if they're always taking the meds if they have a diagnostic code and if you have high cholesterol and you're not prescribed a drug we might be a little bit suspicious things like that but I think what it probably does is make makes us question that it'll be difficult to know the right answer for but that the highest risk population was not 169,000 patients with RA 
on the OP0140 population. That was everybody with RA on a, um, a multitude of different drugs. So I think that the word um, is not fully, we're not able to fully answer it. And I think we have to just kind of look at the risk factors and say, is this something I'm willing to prescribe or, or not willing to prescribe in certain populations with certain diseases? And I think that's as far as I can kind of go. Yeah, you know, I, my own reflective way of thinking about this is that these different studies are like Rorschach tests for rheumatologists that like, if I don't like it, because it doesn't really jive with what I do, I'm gonna, I'm gonna look for other data. And, you know, I want something that's going to reinforce the story I'm telling myself. Um, and, and, and again, it, believe, believe me, oral surveillance is not perfect data. We can have nine different interpretations of oral surveillance that, you know, that tofacitinib isn't worse. It's just not as good as and all kinds of other interpretations. But I think that it's, I find these, this exercise interesting, especially when we're going to, we're coming back to where we began. And, 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 and so recognizing that limitation, I'll throw out a study that from yesterday that is actually an Annals of Internal Medicine. It's a study that says that low-dose colchicine lessens the risk of hip and knee replacement. Uh, it's a study called the LODO-CO2 trial, the low-dose colchicine 2 trial, which was devised a number of years ago and published in New England Journal in 2020, looking at patients with coronary artery disease, chronic coronary artery disease, and giving them 500 millig I'm sorry, 0.5 milligrams of colchicine a day or placebo. And it was like 2,700 patients in each group. And in the end, I think it was one year or two years that there was like 6% uh, cardiac events in the placebo group and 3% in the other. And it was significant. And it was a New England Journal paper. And I wasn't really aware of it. And I I'm not aware that colchicine's become a mainstay of therapy in coronary artery disease patients in the cardiology world. But then again, we don't, I don't follow that. But what I find interesting is how this paper came to be. And it really, I don't know the full story, but I do know that they, they flashed up the results of the Canto study, which was another anti-inflammatory effort um, in heart failure patients um, that um, did show significant benefits on future gout risk, prevention of knee uh, replacements and also lung cancer, you know, things that wasn't really designed to do, right? Um, so they saw that and I said, well, hey, we got this 5,400 patient long-term data set. We should see what happened to them as far as now hip and knee replacement. They know nothing about osteoarthritis incidents, arthritis meds, pain levels, hack scores, none of the things that you would use to predict future need for joint replacement. And they showed um, uh, a 31% lowering of risk. And it was very significant. They made the results even more significant by dropping those 8% who had declared themselves as having gout. They also made it more significant to 40% lower by dropping those who needed a joint replacement within three months of the end of the study. So um, this, to my knowledge, is the first real hint that colchicine may lower the risk of anything in osteoarthritis. It's failed in hand always, it's failed multiple times. The and authors presented a slide of 12 studies 
with 10 of the 12 having positive results. I don't know where they got those studies from because everything I've ever read said colchicine really, it's a, it's, it has a, no effect greater than the placebo or the uh, acetaminophen comparator. So anyway, this is another, this is my looking at a study and saying it gives us great data, but it wasn't really attend, intended to do that. And the question is, who's, who's going to believe this data? In running around and talking to rheumatologists, other than the ones who presented the data, most people still don't believe it. Well, it's a problem, isn't it, with um, looking for the needle in the haystack, right? I can redefine my terms. I can do post-talk changes, change the population. But on the other hand, um, canukinumab and colchicine both can dampen IL-1. They both can work um, somewhat in auto-inflammatory syndromes, different doses, of course. Um, and uh, there's a lot of... Um, overlap between what's going on in osteoarthritis, um, some of the changes uh, at the level of the cellular level and what is happening at the cellular level uh, with some um, mediators, apparently, if we're looking at auto-inflammatory syndromes. Otherwise, they don't look the same at all. One is not a CRP disease, um, and maybe that's more an erosive OA with uh, effusions and things like that. So, I mean, it's, it is, it's interesting. I don't have a clue if it's... Um, the data are true, but I don't have a clue how to interpret the data to reality or when I'm going to treat patients. Yeah. There's, there's one thing I'd like to, to mention, though, because see, when I saw that, the first thing I did was to go online and look for the original paper that was published in the New England. And, um, and you know, I was thinking, did they implement that in cardiology? Again, I have no clue because I'm not a cardiologist. But there's one thing that, that I saw was really interesting in that paper is that, yes, it does decrease cardiovascular deaths and, and, and in the, all the composite outcome. However, it did increase the number of deaths for non-cardiovascular related codes. And, and, and the increase of the non-cardiovascular deaths was actually almost as as much as the decrease in cardiovascular deaths. So, you know, even if we think of giving this for osteoarthritis, I think we should think twice because I think the, um, we should also look at the safety profile and, and it was not great. <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, clinical trial methodologists um, would have a, a festival with this report. Um, and what it may mean. So like Mike Putman will be all over this very soon on evidence-based rheumatology. Let's go with uh, one more, maybe a short presentation um, that you wanna review, Orly? Yes, sure. So there's been a lot um, of uh, discussion around the difficult to treat rheumatoid arthritis. The, um, actually the, the definition was presented last year um, at EULA and, and then, and then, you know, I think now we have this group of people that, yes, they do not respond to multiple therapies. But in fact, I think, you know, the, the one of the presentation, I think it's um, 0170, I think, um, was was really interesting today because it was looking, it's a lead group that looked into their own cohort of RA people and there was quite a lot of them. Well, actually it's OP0134. Um, they looked um, amongst these people and, and in fact, you know, I think there is not one population of difficult to treat. There is different subpopulations within that and they were describing this. So you will have those that, you know, do not respond to multiple therapy, still have high CRP, still have high... 
um, synovitis and, and they do have inflammatory disease, but you also have a group of people that have really high pain and not a lot of, uh, of inflammation. Um, and these people, I think you need to treat them differently than just giving them another mechanism of action. And um, and in fact, those who were really resistant to uh, that they call polyrefractory were in fact the two point five percent. While they have a fifty percent of the pay of their cohort that was uh, corresponding to the, the the difficult to treat definition. So I think within that definition, we need subcategories as well. And so that was quite interesting. And, and you know, yeah. I fully agree. I agree. Yeah, it should. It's okay. to me, it's difficult to define because. I think there's even a third group and I think they should all be, you know, difficult to treat group one, two, three. To me, the third group might have high or low disease activity, but probably high, but they don't tolerate drugs. They cycle through, they're either non-adherent or they can't last on the right, like the prescribed dose for a period of time. And they might be difficult to treat because they've never really had a good enough chance at a proper dose to do well. And so they're all different. Are, are the way we would treat someone non-adherent or doesn't tolerate, maybe you'd add two low doses of something instead of high dose of one thing. For the chronic pain one, you treat the pain, not change their RA meds. And the high disease activity in RA, I think we would, uh, who could tolerate drugs and were secondary loss of response or primary non-responders, I think we do something different, maybe give them high doses or um, go to even more um, advanced therapies in a category and, and look. So they're all different. I, I don't like the definition. It's difficult to diagnose from the definition what's really going on. Yeah, I, well, I, I think that the definition's main role is going to be in future, guiding future studies because you, without a definition, you can't have a logical, systematic, uh, incisive approach to a problem that if you can't homogenize your populations in some way. Um, so, and I, and I, I kind of, my, my lecture on difficult to treat RA is really all about pain and all about fibromyalgia and mechanical pain and whatnot, not really about a new molecule that, you know, might be appropriate, but honestly, if someone has failed seven biologics or targeted synthetics, would, would I really think an eighth one that's novel in some way is going to really be the answer? I'm actually going to bet against that. I'm not a, I'm not against trying it, but I have to have a good reason to use it. So Janet, what's your last one? Right. So really quick, because we have talked about RA and OA. So quick OA one. So it's um, OP. It was yesterday, OP0070. And it was a randomized controlled trial. This is not the first. Um, there's been some before, but an RCT in a of hand OA with methotrexate orally 20 milligrams sub Q or placebo. And I think two take homes are, it was a positive study, a low effect size, but positive. So not a strong effect. Number one, number two, if it hasn't worked by six months, not going to, but it might not work earlier than that. And number three, maybe in all those group means there might be a, a proportion of people in whom it is actually quite effective. So if I were going to take it to the clinic next week when I'm back from ULAR, I think I would say I want uh, someone with erosive hand OA who actually not only has a lot of tenderness and it's really bothering a person, but I'd want to see that they actually have inflammation of the joints, not bony change. It's not going to 
help um, Haberdins and Bouchards, I don't think. So I think if someone had a lot of synovitis clinically, why not try it? You could at least offer and say, uh, this might be worth it in six months if you feel no better at all, uh, abandon it. Well, there's clear desperation when it comes to erosive hand OA. Um, but there's also clear evidence that nothing works, meaning all, lots of biologics have been tried, uh, mostly open label studies uh, and really poorly controlled, not even best really well done studies. There are a few methotrexate trials in OA in general and some mm -hmm. in hand OA that have been mostly negative. So if this falls into a meta-analysis, I don't know that it's going to ultimately win out. Um, I'm not against trying it. Methotrexate is a safe drug and you can, you can have a, you know, uh, defined period. But um, I, I like that the, a positive result occurred. I mean, the, this also bookended the other uh, abstract in that session on denosumab, which we covered at ACR, denosumab being used in erosive inflammatory OA, where it was shown to protect against the development of new erosions, but had no effect on pain at week 48. But what they showed in this follow-up was that there was a pain reduction at two years. Now, honestly, is that going to win with a regulator? Um, can you mechanistically uh, um, understand why it would take two years for pain to get better? My patients are grouchy when they're not better in three days with whatever I give them. It doesn't matter what what right. did, they, did they convert to more bony change where it only hurts when you're knocking your hand, but not when you're doing other things with your hands, right? The other yeah. problem with that is it's a higher dose. So we can't say, oh, because you have OP, I can treat you and we can help both your erosive hand away possibly and help your um, OP because it's a higher dose than our OP dosing. Yeah, I, I, my quickie, what it would have been, we don't have much time here, was it would have been the... Um, uh, I think it was a study from Egypt of 30 and 30 patients were treated with baricitinib for lupus nephritis. Um, and it was, against an active comparator. Um, uh, Peter Nash has a great video on Room Now that uh, shows you the results. And the bottom line is it looked very good, which is surprising because baricitinib, which looked great in phase two, did not do well in phase three in the brave uh, one and two studies, largely because of a high placebo response rate. But this study looked good. And the question is, do you think that study could resurrect baricitinib as a future therapy for lupus? Anyone want to go out on the limb on that? Uh, Lily's not going to invest further in it. Maybe maybe when it's a biosimilar, or um, not a biosimilar, a generic, who knows, right? Because yeah. after having, you know, the failed phase three, I don't think they'd touch it with a 10 foot pole, but sort of like anything, if you don't look in a large, but it would have to be, it, the comparison was cyclo, not MMF. Um, it was only 30 per arm. It wasn't really, um, it was equivalent, but it wasn't powered to be superior or equivalent, frankly. So the power is low, but I mean, you wonder, don't you? Yeah. Do you want to end with what you're looking forward to in the next few days? I'm going to, I'm looking forward to Saturday, um, new ULAR guidelines for treatment of systemic JIA. Yeah, I'm looking to, so tomorrow we're having a, we're having a really nice uh, debate session on uh, uh, digital health and smartphone apps for, for rheumatology uh, with, uh, with a few people. And I think it's going to be a really nice session. So I'm looking forward to that. Excellent. Yeah, and it looks like there might be hope for patients with Takayasu. There's a, a couple of studies where 
Um, it looks like there might be a superiority or two equal drugs. Um, and we'll, we'll see when one's comparing two biologics and another study is more retrospective and a large end though, and Takiyasu is looking at azathioprine versus methotrexate and both look like they might be okay, which is good when our patients are contemplating pregnancy that we might have something else for them. So I think, you know, we'll see what the data really show. Excellent. Um, friends, thank you so much for joining us on this discussion. Tune in, uh, folks out there tomorrow, same time. We're going to live stream this at um, well, 7 p.m. in Milan. That's 1 p.m. Uh, uh, Eastern time. And you can take it from there. Or you can catch the recording of it on Room Now or on YouTube. Thanks, folks. Have a good night.